Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. Hope you have your Bibles. We've got a lot of work to do. Uh, Last week we were planning on being in Ezra 7 and then uh, switched it up last minute. So now we're going to go through Ezra 7 and Ezra 8. If you haven't read your Bible this week, you're going to read your Bible today. It is uh, 64 verses, and if I take one minute per verse, you can see how long that would be. So uh, for your sake and for my sake, because I get hungry about halfway through these things, uh, I'm just going to go as long as I can, and we'll pick it up next week where I, uh, I have to leave off. But we started this series in Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah, really, in our Bibles, it's two different books. We have the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. I don't know why they decided to do that, because in the original, it was one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. It tells the story of uh, three different leaders who are coming back about 400 years before Jesus. The Jewish people have been in slavery in Babylon, uh, and the, the king, Artaxerxes, has now allowed them to go back and rebuild their home. And so they start by rebuilding the uh, temple, and then Ezra comes, and he's going to rebuild the actual worship, and then we'll see Nehemiah come, and he rebuilds the city. So we have three leaders, Zerubbabel, we have Ezra, and we have Nehemiah. Uh, And we get to start today, the guy who wrote all of this, his name is Ezra. And uh, Ezra's story is really unique. Ezra 7 and 8 tell us Ezra's story, really his background, and uh, how Ezra got where he got. Uh, Ezra is doing this about, we don't really know, but we think it's about 40 years between Zerubbabel. So if you'll remember, I know you guys remember everything I say, uh, and you've slept a couple times since the last time we talked about this, so I'll just remind you, uh, we, we left off and Zerubbabel had finished the temple, they had stopped, they had gotten opposition, and then Haggai and Zechariah come and they say, hey, wake up guys, we've got to build this thing. So then they build the thing, they celebrate, everything is awesome, right? Not so much. The people kind of fall back into their old habits, and so Ezra feels a call in his heart to go back and to restore right worship of God's people in God's land. And so when it says after these events, which is what the first words say, it's talking about after those events, after the the 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it was, that we see Ezra coming back. And in Ezra 7, 1 through 10, it tells us kind of the short version of what happens in all of chapters 7 and 8. So I'll jump around a little bit as we go through it. But really, the, the point of today and what we see in today's message is relevant to you and I, because just like Ezra is pursuing his purpose, we also pursue a purpose in this life. In fact, one of the things I say at Ascent often, because I believe it to be true and I believe it to be in the Bible, is that if we follow Jesus, there's four things that are offered to us. We can experience salvation, we can find peace, we can know purpose, and ultimately, we can live fulfilled. And the living fulfilled part comes when we follow Jesus. We actually do the things Jesus said and we begin to follow after him. And a fulfilled life is not a happy life all the time. A fulfilled life is not a comfortable life all the time. A fulfilled life is after you've lived your life and we're reading your obituary, we say, that was a good woman or that was a good man. They got everything out of this life that there was to get out of this life. They lived a life that was fulfilling. It's not laying your head down at the night going, wow, I had a great time here on the beach. It's when you lay your head on the pillow on the pillow at night, and and you say, you know what? Today was hard, but it mattered. What I did today mattered for the kingdom of God. That is the kind of life that we are promised, and most of us, I would venture to say, don't live that fully. Most of us have a couple days a year where we say, man, what I did today mattered. What I did today was fulfilling. And I think part of the problem is, is because we get confused what our role is in purpose and what God's role is in purpose. And if you confuse those roles, if you expect God to do what only you can do and you try to do what only God can do, you're going to live a frustrated life. 
And here we see this beautiful picture of Ezra doing what only he can do and God doing what only he can do. And as those things come in alignment, we see purpose and we see fulfillment. We see the life of Ezra and we look at Ezra's life and we go, that was a life worth living. Now, let me pray for us. Uh, I'm three minutes in. None of that counted. Okay, if you're the the type, you know, that time preachers, uh, don't start the clock yet. Pray and then you start the clock. You guys are really nervous. It's going to be okay. I've never lost anybody. Father God. We come before you today uh, grateful for your word. We come before you today grateful for the life of Ezra and grateful for what we can learn from his life. God, I pray that today you would renew in some of us the the passion that we once had for the purpose that you've given us in our life. I pray that you give clarity to some people who honestly feel like they're wandering in the desert and they don't even know what they're doing. They live for the weekends and Monday through Friday seems like a blur and their life's passing before them and they don't even know what's going on. God, I pray that you give them clarity. Help them to step into the life you want them to have. The life that you've called them to have. And the life that that makes a a difference in your kingdom. A purpose-filled life. The life that the Apostle Paul would say for them is to live is Christ and to die is gain. God, that's the kind of life we all want. We know that we only find it in you. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen. Verse 1. After these events, which I've spoken of, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, Ezra, and then it goes right into Ezra's lineage. Now, here's one of the things you and I don't control, and Ezra doesn't control it either. You can't control who you come from and where you come from. Uh, You didn't get to pick your parents, and you certainly didn't get to pick where you lived. Uh, I find it interesting often when some people say, I'm a self-made man or a self-made woman. And I kind of get what they're saying. You know, like they, they worked hard, and they have what they have. And by golly, they didn't need God to help them. They did the work. And I just sometimes want to say to them, especially if they're American, who who made you be born in this country? Because guess what? You could be born in a third world country and have all the work ethic in the world and you're going nowhere. You're going to be in a mud slum. You know why? Because of something you had no control over. God decides where you are born and who you are born to. And it's quite amazing how much of our life is determined by those two things. Our life is set in a trajectory so much so by where we are born and by who we are born to. The uh, psychologist will tell us that a lot of the way you do your relationships come from attachments that you form to your parents before you were two years old. You know, so if your relationships are bad, basically I'm saying blame your mom and dad. No, don't do that. <laughs> Texting right now. Mom, I get to blame you. No, don't do that. Uh, my mom listens to these sermons, so I'm not saying anything, you know. Uh, in fact, I'm going to edit that part out. But we see here Ezra is set up through his lineage, and he's got a really special lineage. Now, this isn't a full lineage. It's just kind of giving us the highlights. So let's look at what it says. Ezariah, Sariah's son, Azariah's son, Hilkai's son, Shalom's son, Zadok's son, Ahitub's son, Amariah's son, Azariah's son, Marioth's son, Zehariah's son, Uzi's son. That's one of the coolest names in the Bible right there. Wouldn't you want to be named Uzi? Maybe it's just me. Buki's son, that's one of the worst names. <laughs> Uzi and Buki, you know, that's bad. Uh, Abishu, Phineas's son, Eliziar's son, the chief priest, Aaron's son. And that's really the point where we're getting to. Aaron, the chief priest. Ezra is connected in so many different ways to Moses in the Exodus story. And here's yet another way that he is connected to it. And then look where it says he came up from. He came up from Babylon. He was not raised in Jerusalem. He was raised in a pagan culture. You know, this is, this is the guy who comes and plants a church in the Bible Belt, but he was born in New York City. Uh, th- that's the kind of culture shift that there would actually be in this case. So Ezra cannot control, and you and I, we cannot control who and where we came from, but here's what we can control. This is our responsibility. Our responsibility is what we do with it. 
Our responsibility is how we take our childhood and then live our own adult lives. And what I see so often, and I think it's increasing as we, uh, we, we get, become more aware of mental health, which is a great thing to become more aware of. But what I have found is a lot of people can use their parents and where they came from as an excuse for the reason they are the way that they are. You know, somebody looks at their childhood and they say, look at all the trauma I experienced. Look at all the things that I went through. So how could I possibly be a good person or do the things that Blake does? And we kind of throw a pity party for ourselves because of our parents or because of where we came from. But isn't it interesting how two siblings can grow up in the exact same household, suffer the exact same trauma. And one sibling is a victim their whole lives and they never overcome it. And the other sibling sees it as fuel to propel them forward to give their kids a better life. It's the same situation, but it's a different perspective. You do not have to be a victim of your parents. You do not have to be a victim of where you came from. And I know some of you say, well, I had really good parents. And that's great. You ought to praise God for that. Because so many people don't. So many people have these heartbreaking stories of what their parents or their household caused them. And what I want you to know is, while that's not your fault, it is still your responsibility. And here should be all of our goals. That we might give our kids a better life than the life that we had. Just, just better than the life we had. Don't compare your life to somebody else's life. You know, I, I think like if you're seven foot two, you shouldn't brag about dunking the basketball. It's like it's not as hard for you. Now, if I somehow, with all my whiteness, and I am very white, were able to dunk a basketball, there should be a parade. It would be a miracle. You would say, there is a God. I, I can't even get two inches off the ground. But when somebody who's seven foot two dunks a basketball, we think, well, that's cool. But you're seven foot two. But what can we do in our own lives? We look at somebody who had a way bigger head start than us and we say, wow, look how inadequate I am. No, don't compare yourself to them. Compare yourself to where you are. And what you ought to do is move the ball forward so that your kids have a better life. One of the things I'm grateful for is I believe my parents both gave me a better life than what they had. And my job now is to give Blakely a better life than I had. And I'm going to mess up a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm terrified to be a dad. I'm reading all the books and I can't figure any of it out. But I just need to give her a little bit better of a life so that she can give my grandkids a little bit better of a life. And we just keep moving this thing forward. So you don't determine who or where you are from, but you do get to determine what you do with it. Now, as we go on to verse 6, it says at the end of verse 6, it says, He was a scribe, he being Ezra, skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Now, that word skilled is really important. He's skilled in the law of Moses. And when I think of somebody skilled, I generally think of natural talent. I think of those people who things just come natural to them, kind of like the people who are up here singing. Jen uh, was singing for us today. She has a skill. I believe God gave her that skill. I could practice singing for the rest of my life, and I would never sing like Jen Blocker. You guys would never like it. I wasn't born with the right vocal cords. And there is some fact to this that God gives us all these natural aptitudes, these things that we are, we are good at just naturally. And that's why I think when you're young, you ought to try as many different things as you can to find out where those skills are. I think a lot of us, we end up in jobs uh, simply because of inertia. You know, there's a door that opened and we started and then we look back 20 years and it's like, well, I've always done this. I've never tried anything else. And I think that's a really sad way to go about life. I think when you're young, and this is probably one of the failings of our school system, uh, is that you should try different things. That there shouldn't just be one path that every kid ought to follow. You know what school really proved to me? School was really good at proving to me that I was really good at taking some tests and really bad at taking other tests. That's really all it proved to me. It didn't really tell me a lot about what I was actually good at. I took a speech class and I almost failed the thing. Look at what I do for a living now. Well, what's up with that? Well, because I was trying to fit myself into a mold that they make for all of the kids, but it really didn't show me a lot about who I was. So when you're young, you should try a lot of different things. 
Even if you're older, you should try some different things and find out what you're skilled at, what you're naturally good at. But that's what God does. But what we do is we have to develop that skill. And that's actually what this word is right here. If you look at the, the actual Hebrew word, the word skilled uh, is diligently or ready. Ezra was ready. Ezra had worked at becoming the type of person that was skilled. So I could have a natural gift to speak, but I have to work each and every week to prepare sermons. I, if, if I know that I have a skill, then it is my responsibility to work at and to develop that skill. There's the, the old sports saying, goes something like, uh, talent beats hard work when talent doesn't hard. I don't, you guys know what I'm saying. Uh, let me, uh, hang on. Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. You're like, I see why you spelled, spelled speech class. Uh, I mean, yeah, so, and then the same is true in, in life. Whatever you're doing, whatever God has given you, you need to work at that. God gives you the initial skill. We work at the skill. We ought to be diligent at it. Whatever you feel God has called you to do, you be diligent at developing that skill. And here's another thing that we don't control. We do not control. We do not control the platform that we are given. This is something that I struggle with often, uh, just to be really honest with you. And maybe you guys have your purposes all figured out and you're like, you know, for sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing with your life. God bless you. Uh, but if I can be honest, sometimes when you know, I'm all alone with my thoughts, I begin to wonder if what I'm doing is the right thing to be doing. You know, am, am, I, am I supposed to be doing this? Because I thought maybe it'd be a little bit different. Or, or I look at one of my friends on Instagram and you know, they're, they're preaching to hundreds or thousands of people. And I go, man, maybe I'm just not as good as them. Maybe that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. And I begin to think that it's my job to get the platform. But that's not the way it works. God gives the platform when we are ready for the platform. And God sees numbers a lot differently than you and I see numbers. What the world says is success isn't always success. For instance, I would much rather preach to the right 80 people who are ready to attack the kingdom of hell with all the force in the world than to preach to 80,000 people who do not care at all about the kingdom of God or Jesus Christ. Amen. And I love what Proverbs says. Proverbs chapter 22 uses the exact same word that we see in this text. 22 verse 29. It says, do you see a person skilled in his work? Same word used there. He will stand in the presence of kings. He will not stand in the presence of the unknown. In other words, you work at your skill. You work at getting as good as you can with what God has given you. God will take care of the rest. You don't buy your way to the top. You don't buy your eyes to look at you. No, what you do is you work hard at what God has given you. And those things will take care of themselves. Uh, Cal Newport is a business author, and he has a book, and the title of the book is Be So Good They Can't Ignore You. I have not actually read the book. I read titles of books, but uh, (laughs) I love the title of that book, Be So Good They Can't Ignore You. And that's kind of the idea here is that you work hard, and God gives you the platform when it's time. And that's exactly what we see Ezra do. Look at Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. It says, Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, Teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra was super focused. Zerubbabel and Nehemiah had different missions. Ezra knew what his was. Ezra said, I'm going to do three things and I'm going to hold to these three things. I'm going to study the word of God so that then I can live the word of God and then I'll teach the word of God. And everything else is just a distraction. And that's where we all have to get to the point too as well. I'm not worried about what my friends are doing. I'm not worried about the gifts that I don't have. I'm worried about being the best Blake that Blake can be. I have what God has given me. Now it's my responsibility to do the best that I can with it. As we move on to verse 7, we see this. And this is that God will equip us for what we are called to. If God called you to do something, you can be sure that he called you to do to it because he'll give you the resources that you need for it. 
Verse 7 says this. The king had, or this is actually the end of verse 6. The king had granted him, Ezra, everything he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, priests, Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and temple servants accompanied him to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. This is amazing what actually happens here. God works in this pagan king who does not care about the God of Jerusalem at all. And he opens his treasury to Ezra to have everything that he needs for this mission. If we look at verses 11 on through verse 24, we see this. Follow along with me. If you're wondering, why does he read every word of the Bible? Because these are the most important words. We've got to discipline ourselves to listening to the word of God. It's an ancient book. It's an old book. And we have to be disciplined in the way that we read it. Verse 11, it says, This is the text of the letter King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, the priest and scribe, an expert in matters of the Lord's commands and statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings. <laughs> Keep that in mind. Artaxerxes just thinks he's the king of kings. But I'll get back to that. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra, the priest, an expert in the law of the God of the heavens. Greetings. I issue a decree. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. (laughs) I issue a decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including their priests and Levites who want to go to Jerusalem, may go with you. You are sent by the king and his seven counselors to evaluate Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your possession. You are also to bring the silver and gold The king and his counselors have willingly given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Not only am I going to let you go back and rebuild Jerusalem, but I'm going to give you a personal check from my treasury to go back and build it. And then verse 16, it says, uh, verse 17, rather, Then you are to be diligent to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs, dodge rams, along with their... You caught it. Good. Make sure you pay attention. Along with their grain and drink offerings, offer them in the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. You may do whatever it seems best to you and your brothers with the rest of the silver and gold according to the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles given to you for the service of their house of your God. You may use the royal treasury to pay for anything else needed for the house of your God. Can you guys just try to wrap your mind around how amazing this would be if this happened today? Like, let's say the White House calls me and they're like, hey, we heard about you guys and uh, we just want to give you a whole bunch of money. And by the way, if you need any more money, the IRS is open for you. You just go into the Treasury and you take what you need. We want to make sure a sick church has everything they need. That'd be awesome. And it's never going to (laughs) happen. But that had to be what Ezra thought. You know, how is this going to work? King Artaxerxes hates us. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, King Artaxerxes opens up the treasury. But it it gets better. Wait, there's more. Keep reading. Verse 21. I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers in the region west of the Euphrates River. So King Artaxerxes is like the central government in Babylon. They've overtaken all these other kingdoms and they're kind of under the... the, the, uh, Oversight of the, the Babylonian kingdom, but they kind of have their own kind of jurisdiction. But Artaxerxes comes and he says, now look, I know you don't worship the Jerusalem gods, but you are going to support them. So if any Israelite comes to you guys, your little nation has to give the Israelites money for what they need. It says, whatever Ezra the priest, an expert in the law of the God of the heavens, ask you, you must be provided for in full. Up to 7,500 pounds of silver. That's a lot of silver. 500 bushels of wheat, 550 gallons of wine. They're having a party in Jerusalem. 550 gallons of oil and salt without limit. 
Which, by the way, I think McDonald's has that same deal. <laughs> Have you had their french fry? I've never ate a McDonald's french fry and thought, you know what, this needs more salt. <laughs> Anyways, salt without limit. Verse 24, uh, be advised that you do not have authority to impose tribute, duty, or land tax on any of the priests, Levites, singers, doorkeepers, temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. In other words, not only do you have to give them money, but you're not allowed to tax them at all. And then it says this. Remember Ezra, he was preparing. He was being diligent. And then when the time was right, look at what is said to him. And you, Ezra, according to God's wisdom that you possess... Appoint magistrates and judges to judge all the people in the region west of the Euphrates who know the laws of your God and to teach anyone who does not know them. Anyone who does not keep the law of your God and the law of the king, let the appropriate judgment be executed against him, whether death, banishment, confiscation of property or imprisonment. <laughs> not only do you get to go with all the money, but you get to set up the laws and we're not going to we're not going to mess with them. You take this book and you make the laws for your people. It'd be like if the United States government said, Blake, you know what? We give you the state of Oklahoma. You get to make the laws. By the way, the speed limits would increase dramatically if that ever happened. And we would arrest people and put them in prison for driving in the left lane too slow. Just probably why God has not given me the same deal that Ezra got here. He gets to make the laws. But, but look, if this would happen to Nehemiah or Zerubbabel, it wouldn't have worked. Zerubbabel didn't know the law like Ezra knew it. Nehemiah didn't know the law like, like Ezra knew it. Why did God allow this to happen to him? Because God was preparing him for what God had called him to do. And a lot of times it doesn't make sense the things we're doing or the history we have or the parents we have or where we came from. But you have to look at it all as a setup for what God actually wants to do in your life. And what do we see here? That when it's time for you to go, when it is time for you to step into the purpose that God has for you, God will make a way for that purpose to come true. But we are to be like a farmer who goes out and plants a seed. We plant the seed trusting that God will make it rain and that God will make the seed grow into a fruit that produces a crop for us to eat. This is what we do in life. We step out in faith. You do not wait to step out in faith. That's not faith. If you're anything like me, I like to see it all work out on a spreadsheet first. Which, by the way, if that's the type of person you are, you should never plant a church. Because <laughs> there's nothing. I remember sitting next to a guy on a plane going to a church planning conference. He wasn't a Christian. And he asked me what I was going to. And I said, a church planning conference. And uh, he said, how do you plant a church? What does that mean? He didn't have any idea what I was talking about. And, and I said, well, we're going to start a church. And he said, you're going to start a church? How much money does the United States give you to do that? <laughs> nothing. And he said, well, how many people do you have? It's just me and my wife. And this guy looked at me like I was insane. And as I looked at him, I thought, I'm insane. How is this ever going to work? And I remember showing up on that, those first few Sundays of Ascent. And I'd get up there when the, when the timer started. Nobody was there except for my family. God bless Grandma Wendy. She's always there. And, uh, and I sat down and I would start worshiping. And, and the whole time, I'm just so nervous that when I turn around, nobody's going to be there. If I can just be really honest with you guys. And I, I, can just, I can remember every Sunday how it built my faith to get up. And to see sometimes 20 eyes, sometimes 40, but to always see people, to see God was faithful. I took a step of faith and God has always been faithful to give me what I needed to do what he called me to do. And this has been true in our church family over and over and over again. Uh, for instance, we wanted to send every kid to Falls Creek for free. Uh, most churches that I've seen this season are charging $150 per kid. It takes a lot of money to keep your church operating and send kids to camp. And I opened my mouth and I said something from the pulpit and, and you guys responded. God responded. He stirred the hearts of the people so that it would happen. That's an amazing thing. 
Or like the offering we're doing for the young lady after this. As we give our money and we send it off to Texas for her family. You know, last uh, month, month of May, we were $1,800 under budget. Under budget. That's not good. (laughs) Uh, And the first week of the month is always our best offering. It's always the best one. In fact, most of the money comes in at the first of the month because you guys get paid. And uh, then by the end of the month, you're crying for more money, just like me. And so you guys, most of you, you give at the first of the month. So it was really risky for us to give away the first offering. I thought, man, we're already under from last month and we're giving away the first offering. But I knew God had called us to do it. And so I stood up here and I did it. Well, wouldn't you know, and I don't always have stories like this, but wouldn't you know this week I opened a check from somebody outside of our church in the amount that completely covered what we missed last, uh, last month and it completely covered our entire operational budget for the next month. Amen. That's amazing. Because this is what God does. He says, I know it doesn't make sense. I know the math doesn't add up, but you plant the seed and I'll make it rain. Because if I've called you to do it, I'm going to equip you with what you need to do it. And this is exactly why we see that Ezra knows where to give uh, the credit where the credit is due. After all of this, you would think he would say, blessed be King Artaxerxes. Blessed be the president that I like. And I think that's what a lot of us would say. Isn't the guy that I voted for, the girl I voted for so good because of what she gave us? Ezra knows that it's not actually the king who did this, but it was the king of kings, the real king of kings, who was in charge of all of this. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's mind to glorify the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and who has shown favor to me before the king, his counselors and all his powerful officials. So I took courage because I was strengthened by the hand of the Lord of my God. And I gathered the Israelite leaders to return with me. Ezra knows who's really in charge. If you want a verse to memorize, here's a verse to remember, especially as we come into an election season. Proverbs 21.1 says a king's heart is like channeled water. In the Lord's hand, he directs it wherever he chooses. The people in charge just think they're in charge. There's a king who's really in charge, who's on the right hand of the God of this universe in a throne. And he is not worried about any of the things that you and I worry about because he is the one who channels the hearts of kings. He's the one who channels the hearts of bosses, the hearts of pastors to get what he wants done. And what Ezra doesn't know and what a lot of us don't know uh, is that there's a whole nother story that goes on in the Bible behind Ezra that puts King Artaxerxes in this position to do this thing. I'm going to give you an assignment. It's one of the best stories in all of the Bible. It's the story of Esther. It's called the book of Esther because the people who titled these books were not very creative. Story about Esther and we call it Esther. And what we see in Esther is God working in a way that looks really ordinary to us, much like he does in Ezra. But he's working miraculously to change the heart of the king. And little does Ezra know that God has been working in the heart of the king through Esther so that the heart of the king would be in the right place at the right time for God to work through Ezra to do the things that he wanted to do through Ezra. This is what happens in the world, friends. We cannot see the things God sees. That's why he tells us to step, take a steps of faith. And I don't know where you are in your life, but I'm sure that there are some things that God maybe is calling you to do and you don't see the math working out. You don't see the time working out on it. And I would just tell you, you don't have faith if you do it when you see. That's called logic. You have faith when you do it, when you don't see, when you're not sure that it's going to rain, when you don't know what the next step is, but you go anyways. This is what Jesus has called us to because he cares more about you and I than he does the actual thing that we are doing. He's trying to develop us into the type of people who trust God in all things. And that's what we see here in this text. Now, as we go into chapter eight, uh, let's see how I'm doing. Oh, yeah. We've been through 26 verses. I'm 27 minutes in. Thank you. 
chapter 8, uh, we see the first 14 verses seem really boring to us. We're like, this is so boring. Uh, but it wouldn't be boring to them at all because what it represents are the people that God had sovereignly worked in their life to go with Ezra to do this thing. And by the way, if God has ever called you to anything, he did not call you to do it alone. If you are doing it alone, it's probably not from God because God says the church is his body. We work together. I cannot plant a sent church on my own. It started with God calling me to do it, but I knew really quickly that if I didn't have other people with other gifts helping me, it was not going to last very long. And this is true in anything in life. Anything we do or anything we are a part of for the sake of God's kingdom will come in community. It takes other people being called to it. So as we see this, it says, These are the family heads and the genealogical records of those who returned with me from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes. We got Gershom from Phineas' descendants, Daniel from Ithamar's descendants, Hatash from David's descendants, who was, of course, of Shinnekiah's descendants, Zechariah from Parash's descendants, and 150 men with him, that's a leader, who were registered by genealogy. We got Elahi Hanio. Sounds, sounds kind of Hawaiian, doesn't it? Son of Zariah from the Pahath Moabab's descendants, and 200 men with him, Shechaniah, son of Jahaziel, and from Zetu's descendants, and 300 men with him. That's where we get the movie 300. I'm just kidding. That's not. <laughs> you guys shouldn't like, you should know what that is. You godly people shouldn't be watching movies like that. Unbelievable. Ebed, son of Jonathan, from Aden's descendants, and 50 men with him. Jeshesiah's son, Athahathialah, from Elam's descendants, and 70 men with him. Zebediah's son of Michael. Why can they not all be named Michael? It's like, it's so random. Okay. From Shepatiah's descendants and 80 men with him. Obadiah, son of Jehiel, from Joab's descendants and 218 men with him. Shelismith's son of Josephias from Bani's descendants and 160 men with him. Zechariah, son of Bibiah. From Bibiah's descendants and 28 men with him. Johanna, son of Hakatan, from Azkath. I think you got to say that with some flair. I mean, look at that word. <clears throat> and their names are Eliphiphat, Jeul, and Shemaniah, and 60 men with them. Uthiah and Zikur, from Bigabai's descendants, and 70 men with them. Welcome to Ascent, where I preach from mattress tags. <laughs> We don't skip a verse, friends. We just, we won't do it. I didn't pronounce one of those names except Michael Wright, but I tried. Now look at this. God, God sovereignly worked in all these people's lives. And like I said, it's kind of dull for us, but I can guarantee you if I made a list of the initial families that were a part of Ascent, it would not be boring to me. It'd bring me to tears. I didn't even know most of you three years ago at all before this journey started. I knew some of you, but not most of you. And then... To see what God has done, what God has brought, and to think, you know, if, if Rick Hay would have been in a different season of life, just if I'd have missed him by a month, if the Admires would have been in a different season of life, if I'd have missed him by a year, they wouldn't be a part of this thing. But God sovereignly worked in the lives of these people, you people, to be where we are right now when we needed you. And I know we needed you because you're here. And God wouldn't have you here. Some of you are here just to test my patience. God is faithful. Thank you for laughing, Cheryl. <laughs> Maybe I'm here to test all your patience. It's probably more likely. Thank you, Liz. God sovereignly works in these lives. But look, look at what Ezra does. Ezra has to gather them. I gathered them at the river that flows to Ahava. And we camped there for three days. I searched among the people and the priests, but found no Levites there. He didn't have a sound guy. That's where I was. 
You know, the first couple of weeks, I had my laptop and I had like the sound plugged in and it was like stretching across the stage and I'd start preaching. My mic wouldn't work. I'd run off the stage, hit some buttons and come back up here. It was terrible. It was awful. If you weren't there, praise God that you weren't there. And then the Lord sent my guardian angel, Rick Hay. He, when he came in, the room lit up. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It, it, he's bald, so it's like shining. <laughs> Sorry, Rick. I love you. Uh, Ezra said, we don't have all the people we need. But look at what gives him the people he needs. It's the gracious hand of God. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if it's good that I don't take my medicine on Sundays. <laughs> None of this is in my notes. Then I summoned the leaders, Eliziar, Ariel, Shemaniah, El, 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 El Nathan. That's Spanish for the Nathan. <laughs> Jerab, El Nathan again. He got back in line. He did. Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, as well as the teachers, Jorib and Elanethan. I sent them to Ido, the leader at Caspiathan, with a message for him and his brothers and the temple servants at Caspiath, that they should bring us ministers for the house of our God. Since the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a man of insight, from the descendants of Malai, a descendant of Levi's son of Israel, along with his sons and his brothers, 18 men. Plus Hashabiah, along with Jeshishiah, from the descendants of Merai and his brothers and their sons, 20 men. There were also 220 of temple servants who had been appointed by David and the leaders for the work of the Levites. All were identified by name. Might not matter to you that their names are in there, but I promise you it mattered to them. And I think it's pretty cool that they're right now with the Lord Jesus and their names in the Bible. You know, we're going to show up. We're going to see Moses. We're going to see Aaron. We're going to see all these people. And we're going to run into El Nathan. And he's going to be like, did you read about me in the Bible? I'm going to be like, who are you? I'm El Nathan. I was mentioned twice in one verse. That's cool that they're in there identified by name. What we can learn from that is that God cares about each and every one of us. Most of us, myself included, are never going to have world fame. I'm not going to be Billy Graham. Everybody knows Blake Farley's name. But guess what I know for sure? God knows my name and God cares. And what I do for God does not go unnoticed. That's why Jesus says the least in this world are the greatest in the kingdom. We're not, I, I believe that when, we, when Jesus comes back, we're in the new kingdom and we're celebrating these people. We think Moses and Aaron are going to stand up and God's going to call up some random guy that you've never heard of. But he loved the Lord and he did more for the kingdom than we could ever imagine. And God's going to say, let's honor this guy for what he did. He didn't pastor a mega church, but he pastored a church of 50 people well. And he loved them and he was there for them when their children were dying and when they were married. And, and when the people they loved were hurting. This is the guy or this is the girl that we're going to honor today because God sees each and every one of us. And what I also get from this is that you ought to be helping. You ought to be involved in the ministry of the church. Uh, it's one thing to come and listen to me talk. Honestly, for those of you that do that, I don't know why you keep showing up. If That's the only reason you come, because this is so much better when we actually get involved with one another and we're a part of the mission. We're a part of making this thing go forward, and not just on Sundays, but outside of these walls, living to see the kingdom of God spread throughout northwest Oklahoma. And if you're like, I don't know my place, we have this great thing called Starting Point, because it's the starting point for everybody at Ascent. And I'd love for you to join me. The next one's the first Sunday in July, I believe, and we'll help you try to find those places. And also, uh, July will be recruiting season for the fall season. So uh, our coordinators will be calling and trying to fill out positions, and when they call you, just, you know, it was the Holy Spirit that made them call you. So say yes. Whatever they ask you to do. (laughs) 
Not whatever they ask you to do. Because if they ask you to be in the nursery, I don't blame you for saying no. Because I would say no. But guess what? I'm going to be in the kids' classroom for three Sundays this next season. You know why? Because I believe it's important. I believe that standing up here is not the only thing that I can do. Now, uh, honestly, I'm not sure who's going to be teaching who back there. Because I have the maturity level of a child sometimes. (laughs) But I want to plug in. I want to be able to help wherever I can. Uh, in, in our church family. And honestly, those rooms are probably the most important rooms because those are the people that we're discipling to lead the church and to lead the world going forward. Amen. Verse 21. Now, as he moves on his journey, uh, it's interesting to see how Ezra works really hard. We see a lot of Ezra's movement, but look at what the first thing he does is. He goes to the Lord. There's a saying, and I think it's a true saying, we ought to work like it depends on us and we ought to pray like it depends on God because it does. I do all that I can do, but then I pray like if God doesn't help me, it's not going to happen. And that's exactly what Ezra does. Look at what they do before they go out on this journey. Verse 21, I proclaimed a fast by the Ahava River so that we might humble ourselves before God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our dependents and all our possessions. I did this because I was ashamed to ask the king for infantry and cavalry to protect us from enemies during the journey since we had told him, The hand of our God is gracious to all who seek him, but his fierce anger is against all who abandon him. In other words, I just went to King Artaxerxes and I said, Our God's awesome. He's amazing. Uh, Could you send some of your soldiers to protect us, though? He's like, I can't just say that I believe in God. I've got to show that I believe in God. And this is convicting for me this week. You know, I say I trust in God, but do I really trust in my 401k? You know, I say I believe in God, but why do I get so nervous when my bank account starts to shrink? Or I say I believe in God, but why do I get so anxious when somebody who I depend on starts to feel like they uh, have some kind of relational strife with me? Those moments of anxiety reveal something to us. They reveal our real gods. They reveal the things that we truly find comfort in. And we see here Ezra says, I don't just say I trust in God. I believe it before we go anywhere. And you've got to imagine all the people are loaded up. They've got their mules ready to go. It's a 900-mile journey. I don't even want to drive 900 miles. They're walking 900 miles. We need to start yesterday, Ezra. And Ezra says, no, before we do anything, we're going to pray and we're going to fast because it's through God that we're going to get there. If he doesn't help us, we aren't going to make it. And what we see is that this is absolutely true. This is a 900-mile journey for Ezra and his people to take. In the book of Exodus, uh, which was a long time before this, we see that the Israelites had to take a 200-mile journey And it took them 40 years to do it. 40 years in what could have been an 11-day journey. And we see here, Ezra and his people are going 900 miles. And it takes them four months to do it. Why? Well, because God was the one who ultimately led them where they were to go. And Ezra knew that he had to focus on what God said and to follow God's commands. Now, there was actually two ways that you could get to where they were going from Babylon to Jerusalem. One way was 450 miles, but it was a little bit more dangerous in the summertime. Uh, Israel is a desert, and they're going in the summer months. And so they went the 900-mile way uh, because there was less hazards in the way. But you can imagine that about halfway through that journey, all the men were arguing about the direction that they were going. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could just imagine it now. All the guys got their maps up, and they're like, well, Ezra, if we go a quarter mile east here, and then we take a west at Old Farmer John's, we could probably get there about 20 minutes earlier. You know, uh, that's some of you guys. I don't know east and west. I had an old guy the other day asked me for directions, and I, I felt so inadequate the whole time. I was like, you're going to take a left and then a right, go up and then take another left? And he's looking at me like, what are you talking about, kid? Uh, that has nothing to do with the sermon. But... <laughs> We see here that Ezra stayed focused on what God called him to do, and they kept going. And here's something that I know about our church family, and I know about your own life, is that sometimes 
at least for me, I can feel like I don't know if I'm going the right way. I don't know if this is actually what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, when I set out, I had all this excitement and I was really sure on it, but, but I'm about 300 miles into a 900 mile journey through the desert and I'm beginning to wonder if I should have went the other way. And what does Ezra do? Each time he goes back to what God called him to do. He prays and he fasts. This is why every year at Ascent, we start with 21 days of prayer and fasting. Because I don't want to go into the year without God. We see this with Moses in the book of Exodus. God, God gets upset with the people and Moses says, we're not going without you. Like if you don't go with us, God, we'll just sit here and die. Because we do not want to go without you. And this is how we all ought to be with God. Whatever decision you're making, whatever life choice you're making, whether it's moving or a new job or anything you do, you should have this kind of idea of God. We don't want to do it unless you go with us. Now, verse 31 through the end shows us that they made it there safely. It says, we set out from the Ahava River on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. We were strengthened by our God. He kept us from the grasp of the enemy and from ambush along the way. So we arrived at Jerusalem and rested there for three days. On the fourth day, the silver, the gold, the articles were weighed out in the house of our God into the care of the priest Merimoth, son of Uriah. The Lysiar, son of Phinehas, was with him. The Levites, Josabad, son of Joshua and Noadiah, son of Beninu, were also with them. Everything was verified by number and weight. They had the accountants there. You know, they were just waiting to get there and count some stuff. Took a 900-mile journey just so that they could have their spreadsheets. Nerds. And the total weight was recorded at the time. The exiles who had returned from the captivity offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, along with 12 male goats as sin offerings. All this was a burnt offering for the Lord. They also delivered the king's edicts to the royal satraps and governors of the region west of the Euphrates. So they would support the people in the house of God. And here's where I want to close. Jen, if you guys would go ahead and come up. I want to close with this idea that we are called to go with God, but the good news is, is that God is with us every step of the way. We do not go alone. We go with God with us. And we know this to be true as Christians more so than even the Israelites. Why? Because God took on flesh and he literally walked amongst us and he gave his life. He took the place of sinner that I deserved. He paid the penalty for my sin so that I might have life in him and life to the full. And he rose again, showing himself to witnesses. And afterwards, he ascended to the right hand of heaven. But before he ascended, he gave us his marching orders. He said, go, therefore, and make disciples throughout all the nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he says, now, don't be afraid, because all authority has been given to me and I'm going with you. That's why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter eight. Verses 31 through the end gives us great encouragement. I want to end with these words. Paul says, then what are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing that will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
And Father, we come today with that hope in Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you that you have done this for us. We thank you that you sent your Holy Spirit to guide and to protect us. Lord, I pray that we would take steps that we are supposed to take. Lord, I don't know what people in this room are going through, but I know that you call people to things, and oftentimes our fear gets in the way of doing those things. Instead of taking the 900-mile journey through the desert, we stay where it is comfortable and air-conditioned. But God, you haven't called us to that. That's a comfortable life, but that's not a fulfilling life. That might be a happy life, but that's not the fulfilling life that you want for us. God, I pray that you would stir in us to do the things you've called us to do and give us the courage to go as a church family and as individuals in your will. And friends, if you would take about 20 seconds with your eyes closed, head bowed, and just say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Father God, I pray that you give us the courage and the strength to obey what you've called us to do. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.